And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin, newly established aboard the SS Cood Street Motel 6, on the run from rising oceans and collapsing civilizations, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with a very special guest, Nebula World Fantasy Norton, Sturgeon and Shirley Jackson Award nominee Sam J. Miller on the Cood Street Podcast. And and we're back uh, in, 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 a, in a new introduction, a new location, and a new apocalypse. Um, well, Sam, congratulations. We're, we're doing this right about at the launch time for Blackfish City, aren't we? And I think you've got a big launch event coming up in New York in a few days. Indeed, indeed. It's a, it's a very exciting time um, for everything but the amount of sleep that I've been getting. Of course. Um, but, but yeah, we have a, a launch event in New York with N.K. Jemison, which I'm super excited about on Tuesday. Because she's amazing. She is. And, um, and you've had some blurbs. I mean, I, I know, well, I know from having talked to both of you that, uh, that you'd known Carmen Machado before uh, either one of you became famous. And, and she's got one of the really spectacular. I'm, I'm just looking. I just finally saw a finished copy of the book, and I had not seen uh, the blurbs from her and Daryl Gregory and Anne, Le- well, Anne Leckie I had before. But this book is getting terrific reception. Is it... Um, is it something you had in mind way back when you were writing the stories that, like, calved and uh, I, I think you wrote one for Jonathan's anthology, Drowned Worlds? I did. I did. Well, actually, that's a that's a really great connection because, um, you know, I saw the, the documentary Blackfish um, several years ago, probably. I don't remember when it came out, but probably around 2013. And it was this, uh, you know, it's about the, the sort of sea worlds, um, the killer whales that it has in captivity and the sort of terrible tragicness of how brilliant and smart and badass these animals are, but how, you know, awful it is for them to be kept in captivity. And I cried the entire movie um, and was like, oh, killer whales are amazing. I need to write about killer whales. So, um, yeah, my, my story, Last Gods, which was in um, the Drowned World Anthology, uh, was, was sort of my first time spending a lot of quality time with them. And then they just wouldn't leave me alone. Um, they're pretty persistent little buggers. Um, so yeah, they, they kind of, kind of demanded to be, to be dealt with in, in further detail. Um, and this, this, the, the novel does sort of, um, deal with a lot of the same obsessions and frustrations and fascinations that have been powering my short fiction for many years now. Um, you know, I've written, I've written several stories that are obliquely or directly about the HIV AIDS crisis and certainly the storyline about the breaks, um, the sexually transmitted infection in, in right. Black City is very heavily rooted in sort of my, my, my thoughts on and, and, and uh, experience of living in the, in the shadow of HIV AIDS. Well, I was going to say that. The, go, go ahead, John. I was just going to say that. The, oh. You go ahead, Gary. Okay. I was just going to say that I was, I was rereading things with beards. Uh, which, of course, deals with the age crisis, deals with police brutality. And you've, you've not only written, but you've been an activist in areas of homelessness. You've written about Stonewall. Uh, so all this sort of gets transmuted uh, into in, in science fictional terms, but I think it's, it seems all embedded somewhere in Blackfish City, which is kind of a utopia and an urban nightmare at the same time. I'm not going to use the term dystopia to describe the book. <laughs> Because I'm just tired of the term dystopia. <laughs> but it's like yeah, any I, other large technological city. Right, right. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about this because several people have been using the word dystopia to describe it. And I think that, you know, um, we are – dystopia isn't real, right? Like we are living in a dystopia, but we're also living in a utopia, right? Yeah. Like one person's, one person's experience of the world today is going to be very utopian while someone else will be very dystopian. Um, and I think that's sort of in the nature of societies is that for a small number of people, it's an idyllic, um, you know, paradise. And then for a very large number of people, it's pretty, pretty awful. Um, and so, you know, cities contain, like reality contains both those things at the same time. And, um, you know, so in, in attempting to forecast a future or an alternate reality, you know, it's hard to separate those two things out. I think if you were to have one without the other, it would be pretty, pretty boring. I agree. Well, I was going to say, could you take us back? How did you get to the idea of this basically floating Arctic city, this, this keep in a, in a uh, climate change inflected wilderness? Where did that all actually start? How far back does Blackfish City go? 
I think that, um, you know, Blackfish City came together as, as often, I think a lot of times ideas do when, when similar, when like seemingly unrelated things that have been popping around in your brain suddenly spark off one another. And, you know, sometimes it's a character and a, and a, and a supernatural conceit or a, or a storytelling, um, uh, structural conceit. Um, but in this case, the, there were sort of two pieces. One was that I had this, um, you know, I've been really thinking a lot over the past many, many years um, about anti-immigrant sentiment in the United States and this, this sort of xenophobia and this idea that, you know, uh, people who come to the United States are, are somehow a threat and a menace and are to be despised and hated. Um, and, and the really interesting thing about that for me is that, you know, for example, you think about Mexico, which is sort of the, the favorite punching bag of many of the anti-immigrant voices in American politics. Um, and the reason so many folks come here from Mexico is because things like NAFTA, things like American trade decisions, things like uh, actions by American corporations have destroyed the ability of these countries to sort of have an economy that can take care of its people. Right. Mm-hmm. So we've destroyed their country's economies. And then these people who have to choose between starvation and exile choose exile and then we punish them further for it. Um, and so I think that's sort of like this just fascinating um, ignorance that people have right of like you know oh why do so many people come here from latin america oh it's because we propped up brutal dictators for years and years and destroyed their ability their country's economies um so that american corporations could keep profiting um and so i wanted to imagine a future where you know eventually our own our 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 crimes our our mistakes our selfishness are going to catch up to us and eventually you know the fact that we keep uh, making bad decisions that um, impact others will come home. So, you know, eventually, you know, rising sea levels will start to hit us much more hard. Yeah, and, 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 and we'll end up being refugees as well. But uh, one of the things you mentioned that fascinates me about the book is, is kind of the, the economics behind it, because there's a, you, you got a city which in some way is a very science fictional artificial intelligence government, in some ways is Chicago gangster time of the 1920s, uh, there's there's runaway capitalism, there's runaway crime, and the whole thing is being operated through a kind of uh, AI management system. How did you come up with this complex economy? I mean, I think that uh, a lot of it is probably my own perception of where we are already. That that actually, um, you know, I've, I've been working as a community organizer in New York City for over 15 years now. And so I've been working a lot with politicians. I've been going to meetings with elected officials for a long time. I've been protesting them. I've been get, trying to, them to get them to pass legislation to address injustices. Um, and it's really it is really kind of shocking. I think it, it really kind of is my experience of of politics is that polit- politicians really don't have that much power um, or the power that they do have. They are never going to use because to really use it. It would put them in opposition to the, the sort of financial interests that make the real decisions. So in a lot of ways, I think that artificial intelligence is already running New York City and, and most cities, right? It's the, and, that, and that, you know, whatever, whatever money wants is what is going to happen, is what's going to shape city politics. Right. Um, so, so that, you know, here in New York, um, real estate interests are the largest contributors to campaigns for public office. So very few politicians are going to meaningfully intervene in the housing market, which means housing prices will never drop, which means homelessness will never be, right. be addressed. I, I guess one of the things that we should probably do, and we probably should have done this earlier, is just basically describe what the setting and, and the major characters are, because we've we referred to Blackfish City. And how do you actually pronounce the name? Is it Kanak? Or? Yes, that's, that's okay. how I say it. Okay, good. Um, and this is this is an art basically it's an artificial city uh, which is as we've described it, and everything is thrown into chaos when this great image this is one of the best images in current science fiction a woman comes in uh, pulled by an orca whale riding a skiff with a giant polar bear where did that image come from that is just surrealism 
Oh well, thank you. Um, I I love surrealism. Uh, you know, I don't I don't really know. I mean, I think she just showed up in my head one day. Originally, she was a teenage girl who was um, bonded to a, a killer whale and who had sort of come to a floating city because um, she was trying to track down some, another one of her people, and it ended up being a teenage boy, and they ended up having a romance. And actually, some of the major plot beats of what happens to the polar bear in the book happened to the. Uh, monkey that the boy was bonded with originally. Right. Um, so a lot of that got scrapped, but I did, you know, I just love killer whales and I, and I, this, this sort of image of, um, you know, somebody who was, uh, you know, I think this is probably the, the vestiges of my addiction to the golden compass series and <laughs> the idea uh, of, of humans okay. who are, have a, have a, have an animal that is their sort of life companion and what a, what a beautiful thing that is and sort of how well that book, that series works out the magic system of, of what that relationship looks like. So I think this is probably in some ways, um, uh, Philip Pullman fan fiction with the serial numbers filed off and, and given a technological sheet <laughs> instead of a fantasy. Interesting. And it also has, you know, strong, I think, uh, echoes of China Medieval's The Scar, which is similarly sort of water bound and dealing with issues, uh, at sea. Uh, I'm curious how you know how it was as a you know writer sort of approaching what became your second novel. You decided to structure this because one of the classic issues with science fiction is the whole info dump. Uh, the master of info dumping, I guess, these days is Stan Robinson, and you interject the, the these sections into the book. Uh, was it cities with with, with the map? Yeah. And yes. I'm curious as what since you that what what led you to decide to lay that into the book to structure it the way you did? You know, do you do you think that's the sort of thing you need to do in science fiction? I guess to to make it work to fill out the complexity of the work and st- world and still keep the the book tight and compact the way that Blackfish City is. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing about info dumps is you know you're sort of. We're, we're sort of very trained to see them as bad things and mm. to immediately roll our eyes when we come across one in the wild. Um, and, and certainly at Clarion, I, I, I remember info dump being synonymous with bad. And of course okay. the idea of a, of a, of a, a poorly executed um, delivery of, of information that isn't, you know, well done is, is to be avoided. But I think, I think it was Ken Liu who really, um, somewhere in an interview was talking about how like actually info dumps are not necessarily a bad thing, right? They're, you know, they can be done really well. And, and actually often I think science fiction as readers, we enjoy that. Like we enjoy having a chance to sort of um, dive deep into some of like the world building. I love when I'm, I, I don't hate info dumps. I think that if, if they're, if they're, they're done well, they can be a fun. Like I think that science fiction, I don't want to say it's unique, but one of the things about science fiction is that it does allow one of the things, well, of course, Ken Stanley Robinson is one of the great defenders of info dumps also. And he's pointed out that, that, that the idea of the info dump as being an awkward device seems to be something almost exclusively uh, a, a worry of science fiction writers. And so, you know, I, I, I really did find myself getting really interested into things like how floating cities could be constructed yeah. and the fact that there, there is actually science around this and, and there are different schools of, of thought and, and, and the, you know, th- looking at things like how oil rigs are constructed um, and how those, those could or couldn't be applied to a, a, a larger scale urban environment. Um, you know, that kind of stuff I found really interesting and wanted a way to sort of get into that, but also things like what would music look like? I mean, I love one of the things I love about cities is how culture is changed by the people who live there. And so, you know, if, if you had a city that had a huge Somali and Colombian uh, and Thai expatriate community, what would their music look like? How would they come together in interesting ways? And, of course, there's a mystery involved with the, the authorship of the city without a map anyway. So it's not, it's not just a document dumped into the text. It's, it's, it, has, it has a suspenseful plot of its own, more or less. Well, I hope so. Um, you do another thing which is interesting. This is a very minor technical thing, but I don't think I've noticed it earlier. You have one non-binary character. Uh, is the name pronounced Sok or Sok? I think it's like a somewhere between Sok and Sook. Oh, okay, Sok. I'm pretty flexible about that. And all the other characters get traditional pronouns, and this one character gets the plural pronoun, 
which Salk clearly prefers. Um, mm. And was that a this is this is an interesting approach to that debate which has been going on, where some people say we should use all gender neutral pronouns and use the and they for everybody. I don't think I've seen anybody make a point that for people who are specifically non-binary, you use that pronoun, and for everybody else, you use ordinary pronouns. Is that a decision? Yeah, it was definitely something I thought a lot about. I mean, I know lots of um, folks uh, all along the you know gender spectrum who you know have you know singular pronouns, masculine pronouns, feminine pronouns, plural pronouns. You know, there are there are. Um, new pronouns that are sort of like Z and Zier or other sort of like um, uh, uh, pronouns that are sort of intended to, inf- you know, to indicate a certain kind of non-binary gender that some folks prefer. Right. Um, so I didn't want to presume to sort of settle the debate, um, but I did want to sort of have a character who had a clear preference and, right. and for whom that preference was important. Um, you know, I, I, I really wanted to believe that in the future, um, you know, the, our sort of obsessive um, anxiety about gender and our and our you know our difficulty to think outside of the gender binary um, would be in many ways a thing of the past. Um, but I'm not I, I I don't have much hope that it would be completely a thing of the past, right? And so there are things like so being obliged to have this conversation with people because right. you know uh, folks, especially Americans, um, have a hard time with it um, because even in the future people will cling to their sort of uh, worldview, and, and sometimes that worldview is exclusionist of things that they find threatening or different. Um, so, you know, in many ways, it's a better future when it comes to things like that, but the, there will still be people who um, are challenged by having to, having to set aside what's familiar to them. Well, and Greg, some, somebody's pointed out, for example, that Greg Egan will, will write about people who are completely uploaded into nanomites or whatever millions of years in the future they no longer have physical bodies at all and they're still gendered <laughs> right right or you have something like uh Anne Leckie's ancillary series where yeah. um all the characters regardless of their of their biological sex use fa- female pronouns and how how much that changes the reading experience and also how many people found that really weird really or challenging yeah. or or a deal breaker for some reason I'm curious about how you came to, to structure the book. I mean, you have this book. It's, it's only, you know, a couple hundred pages long, 300 pages long. Uh, but you're balancing four or, five, you know, four or five viewpoint characters, the city without a map. How complicated was it for you to get the balance right to make the book actually flow and work the way that it does? Um, I'm not going to lie. It was a, it was a mess. It it was a real (laughs) testament to the acumen of my agent, um, Seth Fishman and my editor, Zach Wagman, who at many points had to be like, Sam, you're describing this incident here, but that did not happen for a hundred more pages. Um, because at at, at a certain point I was juggling, I was shuffling chapters around and, and moving them back and forth. And even, even until the very last minute, very unclear about what chapter was going to be the first chapter, for example, um, which character's POV would be the, the kickoff. Yeah. So um, I think that uh, it got pretty messy. It ended up being a lot. And, um, you know, I think that I was, I was, I don't want to say bit off more than I can chew, um, but it, it was definitely, there were definitely moments where I was like, oh my God, there's too much story in this. In this, this, is, this is 10 pounds of story in a five pound sack. Um, um, but I do, I am, I am really happy with how it, how it, yeah. you know, even out. And I, I give all that credit to, um, to, to, to Zach and to Seth. Was there a to let it run longer? Go ahead. I, you know, I am always really, my preference is always to be as, as brief as possible. I think that, um, you know, I'll usually do a pretty rigorous, like slash and burn edit at one, if not several points along the way, um, because I don't really like long books. I read very few of them. Uh, I know this is a terrible thing to say. No, no, uh, I'm like that. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I, was, I was a Russian language and literature major, and I never read oh War and God. Peace. Um, uh, I did read Anna Karenina several times. I do really love her. Um, but, but no, I, I, do, I do think that I, I wanted to err on the side of being brief and having, having a bunch of, you know, city without a map sections on the cutting floor. Um, because I'd rather I'd rather leave you wanting more than wanting less. Yeah. It must have been a real change in from to, to get back to Art of Starving, which came out last year, 
which was a, a completely different kind of book. It depended, it seemed to me, very heavily on the authentic voice of the narrator. And uh, it, it seemed to me to be a very personal book in all sorts of ways. Um, in some ways, we had a, as you know, it was a finalist for the Crawford Award, and I don't think I'm, uh, I, I'm not giving away anybody's particular secret to say that one of the people who really loved the book didn't want to read it as a fantasy at all. And it's, <laughs> it's not a fantasy. Have you had the reaction? With, with The Art of Starving, definitely. And, and I'm not even sure that, I mean, like, so I thought that I answered the question. I, with, with that novel, I did, I did want to sort of leave a certain degree of ambiguity. Yeah. Um, because especially for young readers, I think there's a real joy in discussing and arguing about books and having a real point of contention where two different readers can take something really different away from it. Um, you know, I think that is something that I value and, and, and wanted to put in there. Um, as something that would spur dialogue and get people talking about the book, um, give people something to argue about. Um, so while I did sort of like leave a lot of ambiguity um, in the book um, about whether or not it was a science fiction or fantasy or, or just contemporary really YA about a kid who was desperately unwell and who was imagining it. delusional because of his starvation, yeah. Exactly. So I thought that I answered the question really definitively in the end um, because there's something that happened in the end that for me sort of answers the question of like what's going on um, but then my husband was like yeah except we only have his word for it so that could that might also not have happened right that also might be part of his well that's, that's, like, that's kind of the point about the, about the narrative voice which I think is, is a terrific voice he's very sarcastic he's very depressed he's very funny at times but you know how reliable is he and you're right the event that you're talking about the pigs I presume will um, mm-hmm. really give anything away to people who are wondering if they're going to be pigs in this book. Uh, <laughs> but I thought that was, I had the same reading, but then it occurred to me, wait a minute, your husband was right. This <laughs> is version of events. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I, I've been, I'm extremely bad at assessing what genre I'm working in at any given moment. So, for example, I've had, you know, I had this story, 57 Reasons for the Slight Quarry Suicide, that I felt like was science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I submitted it to Lightspeed. John Joseph Adams accepted it, but then he was like, well, I think it's more horror, so I'd like to publish it in Nightmare instead. And I was like, well, okay, if you say so. And then it won an award for, for horror, so um, yeah. I guess I was wrong. It was not science fiction. So, <laughs> and, you know, a certain Locust reviewer who, who will remain nameless, but is, is, either, is no, not, not currently speaking to them, um, on this on this podcast, um, <laughs> is uh, uh, would would sort of go out of their way to talk about the, the sort of genre limitations of my short fiction and say how it wasn't really science fiction um, or it was only minimally genre, a genre story. Um, so you know, I get dinged for that a lot, and, and I'm I'm not super mad at it. I, I um, tend to write stuff that is exciting and that I that I that I like, um, and and if it if it veers into uncertain territory, um, you know, as a reader, I don't really mind that um, when I'm reading something, so I hope that readers of mine don't mind. How important do you find any clarity on genre anyway? I mean, these days, surely it's just a tool in your kit bag rather than necessarily something you need to adhere to religiously, I would have thought. I think that's, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I think that the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop was in many ways a really um, illuminating experience for me in that it like, um, you know, I, I, like I had, I was discovering writers like, like Angela Carter um, and, uh, uh, you know, Gene Wolfe, right? Writers who I had never read before um, and, you know, who I, who I ended up loving, but just to see the scope of the genre, right? Um, and, and how many different ways you could be writing whether you call it speculative fiction, fantasy, or science fiction, or whatever. Um, so I'm generally like a big booster for genre fiction, and I love it, and I love the sort of, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, the multitudes that it contains. Uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I tend to um, often kind of, you know, as much as I will say that, you know, genre is a construct, and it's a marketing category, and, you know, there's really no difference between literary fiction and genre fiction, I often get in my feelings when I see um, certain certain writers who are known for work outside of the genre publish a novel to great acclaim that has a lot of genre elements mm-hmm. um, and that is, in my, to my mind, not the best sort of example of the genre. 
Um, so in some ways, I think I'm more partisan than I'd like to believe. I was just going to say, in, in brief defense of, of, of somebody like J.J., if he had J.J. Adams, if he has what he believes to be a horror magazine and what he believes to be a science fiction magazine, he's going to put the story in the one that will that that particular market will enjoy. So it is a marketing kind of thing. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I know one of your classmates was Carmen Maria Machado, who seems to pay. She's she's writing, you know, Law and Order SVU summaries, and is it science fiction, fantasy, horror, surrealism? I I find from the writer's point of view, this seems to the, the idea of genre seems to be less and less important year by year. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it, where, where it becomes important to me is generally more as a reader. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the way that a book like uh, Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, which is one of my favorite novels, mm-hmm. is and isn't a successful genre novel, um, is, is a fascinating like, thing for me to think about and to talk about. Um, and uh, and so, so, yeah, like as a, as a writer, I think people do their own thing. And as readers, we'll, we'll decide what we connect with and what we don't. And sometimes that's based on, you know, um, the, por- the part of the bookstore where we found it. Um, and sometimes it's just based on some other ineffable quality in the, in the work. I guess one thing well, that I, I'm curious about is, you know, talking about genre and everything else, and you've talked about reading, you know, you know various things. Where does what, what's your own reading background? Did you grow up reading science fiction? Where did you encounter it? How how do you feel it's influenced what you choose to write now? Uh, I've always read it. I you know I the. If I go to my hometown library, um, the copy of, H- of, of Ray, Ray Bradbury's S is for Space has, like, my handwriting on it in, like, when I was, like, nine, like, six different times when I signed it out uh, again and again. And so Ray Bradbury was really my first science fiction love. I, I To this day, I think that he's a, a huge influence just in the sort of, like, gorgeousness of his prose and the, the value that he places on on um, on rhythm and sound and, and, and poetry in, in the actual sort of like meat of the sentences. Um, and so, and, you know, I really, you know, I really loved Stephen King. I was reading Stephen King from an entirely too early age. My, my parents were very strict about what movies I could watch, um, but they were not strict at all. I could read, I could read whatever I wanted. So I was reading some pretty stuff at a pretty young age. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, Ray Bradbury and Stephen King for a long time were my, my go-tos. And, uh, you know, I had my world talked by a T.J. Butler when I discovered her. But I think what's, what, what is interesting is that I had also been I lost all of that. I'm, I'm just lost all of your, 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 your de- down, you know, the, the audio coming in. The last, the, last, the last 30 seconds was very spotty. Oh no! Okay, sorry. Yep. Now it's back. Seems better now. Okay, good. Do you want me to start over? Yeah, if you could. About, sorry, and then I'll cut it in. Yeah. Awesome. You're talking about discovering S's for space. Yes. So you know, uh, Ray Bradbury was my first science fictional love, um, and I, you know, to this day when I go back to the my hometown library, I see my child 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 handwriting in the in the um, where I signed out S's for space over and over again, and sort of beauty of his writing and the value that he places on prose and on sentences is something that I, I definitely internalized. Uh, and then later on, I was reading Stephen King and um, you know, sort of like the horror and the sex and the gritty blue collar reality that I saw that Stephen King also and later on. But at the same time, I was also reading things like and so literary fiction uh, authors. And so as a writer, I was, I was sort of operating in two modes. I was writing science fiction because I thought that science fiction was the space for the, uh, right. you know, being the plot heavy, the, the exciting, bloody, outer space, sense of wonder stuff. And then I was also writing literary fiction because I thought that literary fiction was the place for like the deep heart rending plot character So I really thought Well, when you Sorry. Um, no, you were, you were breaking up a little bit then. When you were writing, let's take, for example, Things with Beards, which 
to somebody unfamiliar with John Carpenter could real, read like a very mainstream literary story. That's what its concerns about. Its concerns are about things like the AIDS epidemic or, or police brutality and that sort of thing. And yet it's also a sequel, kind of a fanfic sequel to what is basically a horror movie, which in turn is based on a classic science fiction story. So when you were writing that, did you think you were writing a sequel to a horror story or a science fiction story or both or neither? Uh, all of the above. I definitely, you know, I I saw the thing um, on the big screen for the first time um, and I and I realized that um, I wasn't sure. And then I did, debated it with my friends and, and, and there was a big diversity of opinion about whether or not the people who had been infected with and replaced by things knew that they were things. Right. Were they right. pretending that they didn't that they that to be human or did they really believe that they were human? Um, and so that's sort of a fascinating angle to go down. And then and if you go down that rabbit hole, it leads to a whole potential plot line of like what could happen right. next. So really, this is like fan fiction in its purest sense of like, I love this source. Um, this, this canonical source sparks a whole lot of exciting ideas for me. And, you know, just like I might want to write, um, you know, a, a fan fiction about two boys in Avatar The Last Airbender who I wish had had a romance in the cartoon. Um, you know, I'm imagining a, a sort of like a, another level of, of, of plot um, and another you know, a sort of a sequel to it. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't thinking about it as much more than a gnarly um, horror story that I was hoping to be, uh, that would vibe well with the original gnarly horror uh, uh, source. Had you read John W. Campbell's story, Who Goes There? I did. I read it in high school. Um, and I, at the time, I had seen both the uh, original movie of The Thing and the John Carpenter remake of The Thing. And, um, was really interested in the ways that actually the, the story, I think, is a lot closer in spirit to the John Carpenter one. Um, it's, it's scarier. It's more, um, you know, the, the original the, the, the from the 50s is very sort of macho in this, in this Howard Hawks kind of military buddy way. Um, and uh, the, the source material, I don't think, is, I think it's scary. I'm curious, uh, sort of to, to diverge a little, and just to ask, who, you know, as a, a, a science fiction writer who's you know, two books into his career, has been writing for a, you know, about 10 years, I guess now, 12, 12 years, who do you see as your contemporaries right now? Who do you feel are your classmates, if you will? You've talked about going to Clarion, and you know, we've mentioned that, that, that Carmen Machado was at Clarion with you. Um, who do you feel are the people who are simpatico and, and in sync with what you're doing? I mean, honestly, I think this is like the most I, I'm just so excited and honored and, and, and constantly wowed by how much great science fiction and fantasy and horror um, is being is being written. Um, and so, you know, the the um, uh, there's so many great writers. I mean, I think of folks like, you know, a lot of other folks who have come out of the Clarion Writers Workshop, like Alyssa Wong, who um, was a graduate of the class of of uh, 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 2013, um, and, and Isabel Yap, who also came out in that same, uh, in that same era, um, in that same class, I mean, um, but you know, you've got Amelo Motar, uh, you've got Theodora Goss, mm -hmm. Daniel Jose Older, uh, Maria Devana Headley, N.K. Jemison, Elliot de Bodard. There's like, I, I, it's just like a, an embarrassment of amazing riches um, of, of great writers who are happening, who are, who are publishing stuff now. Carmen Maria Machado, Lara Elena Donnelly. Mm -hmm. um, I love uh, Mark Rustad and uh, John Chu and K.M. Spera. Um, and, you know, I, I also am a young adult writer, so there's a lot of great young adult writers who course, are doing yeah. amazing stuff. Um, uh, like Heidi Heilig and uh, Nova Rensuma and Sean David Hutchinson and Cindy Pond and Fonda Lee, who unfortunately I'm against both of them for the Norton Award this year. And <laughs> both, of them both of them totally deserve to win because their books are amazing. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm just so um, blown away by how much great stuff is is out there these days. So does that mean uh, does that mean you intend to continue writing young adult fiction? I would love to. I really love young adult fiction. I love it as a reader and I love, um, you know, it is a very different world. Um, and I, and I sometimes feel like, uh, like I'm inhabiting two realities in my life as a young adult writer and a, and a regular adult writer. Um, 
because uh, you know there's there's just the, the like the way that young people read and consume books is so different, and there's such a vibrant um, online. Um, community of young folks who read and respond to and engage in dialogue with the writers that they read. So I think that um, it's, they're both, they're both wonderful. And, and there's sort of great, great stories that you can tell both ways that uh, you, mm-hmm. you know, are, are sort of like the same way that I love both science fiction and fantasy or, or horror and, um, and, and fantasy, right? It's like, these are just different, different conversations to be having with different people. Um, uh, so so yeah, I, I love it. I, I don't I don't want to stop. I do no, want to slow down. Da- I do want to slow down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like maybe a book a year was uh, a bit uh, ambitious, um, <laughs> and um, I, I I'm deeply. I feel like like I can't look my friends in the eye who are short fiction editors anymore because <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I want to send you a story. I really do, but I haven't written a story in six months, and I feel terrible. Um, so I, I need to make some time for short fiction. So you don't feel like novels are the logical next major focus of what you do? You want to keep working on short fiction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, The the Art of Starving was my first novel, but it was also my seventh novel um, uh-huh. because I wrote six novels beforehand that nobody in the world wanted. Uh, and so I, I've always been writing novels and I've always been writing short fiction. Um, and so I love them both. You can do, you know, such different things with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, I'm sure there's a, you know, problematic analogy to be made about the, like the difference between a really awesome one night stand and a really meaningful <laughs> long-term relationship. Um, but they both have their place. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to do both at the same time. So, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I definitely don't want to leave anybody, leave anybody behind. Well, I, I guess I, I should follow and say, is, is it your goal to become a, a full-time writer? I know that you, you, know, you, you work uh, supporting ho- homeless people in New York. Uh, is writing what you want to do all the time, or do you feel it's one of those things where you're better balanced with something else you're doing? It's really hard to say. I mean, I love my job. In, in two weeks, I will have been at my job for 14 years. Wow. Um, and the, the folks that I work with, the, the, the opportunity that I have to meet people and work with them and see their, their, their strength and their power uh, and their wisdom and to work with them to change the, the sort of bad policies and laws that are impacting them um, is amazing. And so I get so much out of that. And the fact that, uh, you know, probably a couple of years ago, I would have said, yes, my goal is to, to be a full-time writer. Um, but after we sold the art of starving, I, I was able to go to part-time at work. And so, uh, I'm really loving the setup now where I have three days a week where mm-hmm. I am a community organizer and I go into work and I do awesome stuff with awesome people. And then I have two days a week where I do not, uh, and I stay <laughs> home and I, and I call it my uniform for my second job, which is, you know, pajamas uh, <laughs> and uh, I get to write yeah. and then for, go for a long bike ride in the middle of the day and get some more ideas or go to a bookstore and read in the library for a while. So, um, you know, I'm sure that if I did not have a job, I would be able to write more. Um, but I think that it's, it, I'm in a really good place in terms of the quality that I have based on the sort of like the way that they balance each other out. The reason I ask is I, I would wonder if, if you were just writing full time, would it fundamentally change what you write? Because what I get, particularly from Blackfish City more than anything else, is this sense of connectedness with people, with a different range, spectrum of people. And what I always wonder with writers who are working full-time, and there's many, many wonderful writers who do, uh, if you become a little bit more insular and closed off and self-referential rather than connected with the world around you. Hello. Yep. Hello? Didn't you get? Did you? Didn't you get that? I you cut out after cut off from the world around you. Okay. Sorry. Well, I, I guess really the question is, do you feel that working, you know, having, having the day job that you do, keeps you connected, opens you up to a variety, a, a, a spectrum of people that then gets reflected in your fiction? 
I do think so. I, I think that I am I am made immeasurably stronger as a writer and a person and as mm. a person by my by my work and not just my work, but like my friendships and my um, marriage and my family and the people that I interact with on a daily basis and my friends from back home. Um, and I, you know, as much as I like prize solitude and, and like being able to sort of cut myself off from the outside world and, and write, um, I do think that my work is made stronger by the people uh, in my life, even or if not because, uh, if not especially when they're making me miserable or they're stressing me out. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I, I often, you know, I, 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 I get that this is not probably true for every writer, but for me, um, being able to like, you know, bump up against lots of different kinds of folks who come from dramatically different backgrounds than me um, and with whom I can engage in dialogue um, does make me like much stronger as a, in terms of my ear for, um, for humanity. And that's what I think is, is you know, is, is super important to capture um, as a writer. So I could imagine some of that atrophying if I was. Uh, I, I wonder if some of that has to do with the nature of your work though, because uh, as I understand it, doing uh, things involved with political activism and community organization are things that are uh, at least designed to have some immediate impact. You can see people change their lives as a result of what you do every day. Most day jobs aren't like that. I mean, Wallace Stevens was an insurance executive. He didn't change people's <laughs> lives in his daily uh, work. And I was I always wondered if, as, you know, even as an idealistic writer, you realize, okay, this may change minds, it may make people more sensitive to certain issues, but you don't see it happen on a day-to-day basis, and you hope it happens in the long run. If you're working as a community organizer, don't you see that happening almost on a day-to-day basis? I do, I do, and it's the thing that, um, you know, is, is the thing I love the most about my job, and, and when I compare it to things like some of my friends who are, for example, social workers or um, lawyers who, who are like legal aid lawyers who represent um, low-income uh, clients in, in court, um, I feel like a lot of them get burned out much much more quickly, right, because they're, um, you know, they're trying to help people navigate a, a fundamentally broken system Um, and and that gets really hard and and fighting to change a system even if you're even if it's not changing as fast as you would like it to um, does is really powerful and 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 galvanizing for me and and seeing the way people are I don't even like to say changed because I don't like most of the people who I meet are amazing when they walk in the door they're smart they have power that you know I like a lot of groups talk about empowering people Um, I think that's a little patronizing because I think folks are already powerful. It's just giving folks an opportunity to be powerful together. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the fact that people who are the way that community organizing and fighting for change helps people feel like less powerless, right? It helps them feel like even if I'm in a terrible situation and I don't see a foreseeable outcome, um, I don't feel helpless and I feel like I can fight to change it. Um, and, and I feel like I can see so for the folks I work with as well as for me, it is really uh, energizing. And, um, you know, I don't have any illusions about fiction's power to, to change yeah. the world. Um, you know, I would love to think that it, I think that it's that, you know, when it comes down to it, like great storytelling can help people survive the world and it can help people who are fighting to change the world have the strength to keep going. Um, you know, but lots of like, you know, you know, plenty of people who I think have views very different from mine, you know, can enjoy my stuff. I would like to think um, they might not have their minds changed. Um, yeah, but that might not be who I'm writing for. I might be writing for the, you know, fully gay kid who hasn't seen himself page, so he can be strengthened by a story like that. Uh, but I, you know, I think it's easy as writers to get a big head about how how much change. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, do you have a feeling for what you're going to work on next? I mean, you're saying that, you know, sort of you don't feel like you want to write a novel a year. And certainly, you know, by the happenstances of publishing and chronology, The Art of Starving and Blackfish City have come out very close to one another. But do you have a feeling for um, where it will go next for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm by, you know, May 1st, I have to hand in the final draft of my second young adult book. Um, <laughs> Art of Starving was a, was a two book deal. Yeah. Um, and so this one is uh, sort of like half gritty contemporary YA, half uh, contemporary fantasy YA. Um, 
right now it's called destroy all monsters. Um, so that is, that is, that is on the horizon. Um, unless my editor decides that it's just complete shit and doesn't want to move forward with it. Um, but, and I do, and I am thinking about my next non YA novel, but I did, you know, I had started it and I think I am going to, you know, take a step back from it and really work on short stories for a while. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into promoting a, a book that I underestimated as <laughs> part of starting. Um, so, uh, you know, being able to sort of, as a writer, hold space for just the writing is hard enough. But then when you start to have to add in all this other stuff, um, it's easy to get frustrated. Like, oh, my God, I'm, I didn't have any time to write this week because I did all this other stuff. And, mm. well, no, stuff is important, too. And it's exciting and wonderful. And, um, you know, it's all part of it. So, so I... My plan is to relax a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I mean, somewhat uh, where, where Gary started, you must be, I mean, for, for all of the work you have to do promoting uh, Art of Starving and Blackfish City, uh, many, many books sort of disappear into the abyss on their publication dates. You must be pretty pleased with the way that they've been received by the world so far. You know, I am pretty pleased and also completely unable to under to like assess whether or not my sense of the books, either books um, sort of like place in the universe is is an accurate one. So, you know, there's a part of me that's like, you know, hey, it's doing really well. It got nominated for these awards. And there's part of me that's like, you know, but 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 but. What if, what if, what if nobody's reading, you know, like I just, I can't, I don't have a good sense of, of the, of, I, and I generally don't, whether it's short stories or, or now novels have a sense of whether or not, um, you know, when I think it's doing well, is that because I have this sort of like, um, you know, perception bias of I'm only seeing the good things or I'm, I'm looking for things. So I see them, but they, they are statistically insignificant. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to tell and extremely hard for me to stop stressing out about it. Um, so, uh, you feel you that you're writing in too, I mean, it's too early to tell, uh, what the readers, the, the long-term readership of Blackfish city over the next few months, I was going to ask if you feel like you're writing in two, two different worlds with the art of starving, not having a lot in common, Structurally or or, or, or genre-wise, with um, with Blackfish City, I'm thinking, for example, uh, of Paolo Bacigalupi, who of course made an enormous splash with his adult fiction, and then, as far as I could tell, uh, his young adult trilogy, starting uh, with the uh, the Drowning Drown Drowning Cities, Shipbreaker. Ship, Shipbreaker was the first one, the Shipbreaker trilogy, which ended up with Tool of War. As far as I can tell, most of Bacigalupi's readers of his adult fiction followed him into that. But he also wrote a middle-grade novel, his zombie baseball beatdown novel. As far as I can tell, that was a kind of fault line. I don't think the adult readers followed him into a zombie baseball novel. <laughs> Drowned Cities novels. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I, d- I did not follow him there. Uh, not, <laughs> not because that doesn't sound like an amazing book, um, but just because I haven't, haven't gotten to it yet. Um, <laughs> But it's weird. I don't I don't really know um, of the difference between audiences, because like I read both um, as a as a reader. Um, I read a lot of, of of young adult and non YA fiction. And I know a lot of people who do. And and, you know, as a writer, I'm really conscious of the ways that young adult audiences are different. But um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't I, do, I don't really think of it as as two hugely separate modes. Um, you know, I was recently doing an event and somebody in the audience asked me, how do you write for teenagers? Because I find teenagers so inscrutable. And I was like, I am a teenager. I I have not not meaningfully changed since I was an adolescent. I would love to tell people that I have, but like, you know, the only reason I make fewer bad decisions now is because I'm a lot lazier and I get tired more easily. Uh, so, you know, I don't think of, um, my YA fiction is hugely different from my regular fiction. I think. Well, it, it, it's also something uh, we made this point on this podcast before. The most a good deal of science fiction before, like 1970 or so, would could easily be marketed as young adult fiction. You mentioned loving Bradbury's collection S's for Space, which is a repackaging of his earlier stories, all written for a general science fiction market, repackaged for YA. Um, hmm. and there were three or four anthologies like that. So Bradbury, who was never a YA writer. Uh, in his in the heyday of his science fiction career, retroactively became one simply because of the discovery that young people enjoyed his stories as much as adults did. Right. 
Yeah, and if you think about something like if Catcher in the Rye was published today, it would definitely be young adult. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. most grown-ups would like get in, get their get off, you know, uh, <laughs> feel feel very very uh, upset about that 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 notion because there's a, this idea that YA is somehow less than or or more childish than, um, and the idea that a book as serious and deep right. and profound as as Catcher in the Rye could um, could be that is is, is somehow existentially threatening to people. Um, but you yeah. know, you compare that to something like perks of being a wallflower and I'm, I'm challenged to find too many meaningful, um, distinctions. Um, but so, so yeah, I think that, you know, these categories are pretty, um, pretty flimsy. I think readers read what they love, um, regardless of how old they are or how old the, the protagonist is. Did you get a sense a lot of science fiction and fantasy readers, people who had followed your short fiction were reading the art of starving? I think so. I mean, I definitely heard from a lot of folks um, who did. Um, I mean, I think that the, the real interesting difference that, that, that constantly baffles me is that, like, so many more people read novels than short fiction. That's you know, true. You, think it, you would think it's the other way around, right? Short fiction is shorter. You can read it much more quickly. Um, so, you know, it, it's just sort of illogical to me that so many more people read novels than, than short fiction. Um, but it is what it is. Uh, and so, you know, the... the much sort of scope of responses that you get to a yeah. short story is so different that it's difficult for me to sort of like, you know, in the, in the relative abundance of responses to art starving versus uh, a, any given short story of mine. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I definitely see some familiar faces and, and hear some familiar voices. Um, uh, but it, it feels like I've suffered long stage. Yeah, I can understand that completely. Well, we're sort of coming towards the, the top of our hour, so we might begin to sort of wind up. Uh, I would like to thank you so much for taking the time to join us this evening. It's been really wonderful to talk to you about Blackfish City, which is out in bookshops right now, I believe, certainly in the U.S., and I think the almost equally but not quite as stunning uh, dust jacket for the Brit- the British edition will be out in the next week. Uh, I, I think really- I'm I'm. It would it would be indelicate of me to weigh in with my opinion on that. Um, uh, but you're not wrong. They're both amazing. <laughs> They're both amazing covers. They are. They're lovely. But but, it's, but I mean, it's I have to say, when it came down to, to me to sort of hand over my own dollars and kind of order a copy, it was the U.S. edition I bought because. It is such a striking cover and, and such a lovely looking book. Uh, and, and did you notice say, that it glows in the dark? I did not. Does it actually? It does. It does. Yeah, the, neon, the neon lettering, the, ne- okay. the neon on the cover is, is glow in the dark. Okay, I'm completely That's taking cool. this into my bed. I've been closing the door as soon as we're done here. If you, you don't have to tell us that. No, no, no. You don't have to tell us that, Gary. You take the book where you want to take it. That's a private decision. <laughs> I'm not going to get it. But that said, it's a marvelous book. I greatly enjoyed it. I will be totally unsurprised to see it all over awards ballots next year. Uh, I'm, I think the fact that it's as timely and as engaged, and frankly, you know, speaking as someone who looks at anything that says volume one and there's 400 pages on the cover and runs, is as compact as it is, <laughs> is, is a mercy to, to us all. Uh, and I can't wait to read Destroy All Monsters. So, you know. Well, thank you. Thank you, and I really appreciate you all taking the time to chat with me. I had a, I had a great time. This has been a great conversation. It's a great conversation. We should do it again sometime. So sure. Anytime. Okay. Excellent. Well, until next time, we shall talk to you again. Gary? Thanks so much, y'all. And until next week, with Jonathan and I back doing something or other, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>